Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're going to continue looking at verses 3 through 5 this morning. You know, one of the fundamental differences between Christianity and all the other religions of the world is grace. In every other religion of the world, whether it be Islam or Hinduism or even the Christ-naming cults, they all require that you climb up to, to God in, in, in some way and, and thereby add to, to your salvation. The system of, of, human era, uh, of human effort comes in, in many forms, uh, like performing the sacraments or engaging in obligatory prayer, whether that's three times a day or five times a day, doing some, some good deeds, and even in forms of sincerity. Some of those religions, uh, particularly the, the Christianized ones, even use the term grace. They'll redefine the term grace as God giving you these opportunities to, to climb up to Him in, in some way. Uh, kind of like... God made salvation possible, but, but you must make it a reality by, by your effort or, or your will. And the concept is God did his part, and now you do yours. You know, like this meeting God ha- halfway. But only biblical Christianity teaches salvation is by, by God's grace alone. A grace that's holy uh, of God. I mean, the Bible reveals that while we could not come to God, He came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and He didn't just make our salvation possible. He accomplished it. And then He applied it. And then He keeps it all, all Himself. We, we cannot add one thing to it. And God doesn't even ask us to. It's all of grace, to, to borrow Charles Spurgeon's uh, title of his book that you may have have read. And in that book, Spurgeon said, grace is the first and last moving cause of salvation. And faith, essential as it is, is only an important part of the machinery which grace employs. We are saved through faith, but salvation is by grace. Put it bluntly, If you will be saved, you will add no part to it. If you are saved, you had no part in it. And and if you remain saved, it's all because of of grace. And that's a grace that's pretty amazing. And it's so amazing that in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul deals with natural questions about a grace that's, that's so amazing and Assurance uh, in, in, in Christ is still the overarching theme that he began all the way back in chapter 5. But, but Paul needs to set the record straight as to how this grace operates in the lives of believers, particularly in light of sin, particularly in, the, in, in light of, of a grace that's so one-sided and, and then uh, the reality of, of knowing that, that you're tempted and that you sin and, and now how do, how do these two things come together? A grace that's, that's engulfing, that's overflowing. A grace that, that comes to you, that you didn't have any part of. That, that, that one-sided aspect of grace is, is a stumbling block to, to people who don't understand their sinful condition. And so Paul has to explain to, to them 
even for those who have been saved, even for people who understand their depravity, even for people who understand it has to be by grace. It surely couldn't have been by me. Even for people like us, we, we often wonder how, how grace relates to, to sin because we still do it sometimes. So, so does grace just overlook sin? I mean, does grace cheapen forgiveness? I mean, how do I live under grace in a world that's still fallen with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so Paul teaches us that grace surely doesn't lead to reckless and unholy living. It's just the opposite. The believers don't continue in sin so that grace may abound. That brings up another question, which is how that's possible with sin in us and, and around us. So Paul, in Romans 6, reinforces a believer's new relationship to sin in light of, of being saved by this grace, this grace that he introduces at the end of chapter 5. And while Christians are completely forgiven by God through the grace of Christ, we still live in a world. We still battle the flesh. We still have an adversary, the, the devil. But after salvation, Paul says, we relate to all of those things in, in, in very different ways. And understanding that new relationship gives us massive assurance and motivates us to pursue holiness. But it never leads to more sin, which is how he starts. God forbid, Paul says, it, it leads to, to holiness. And one day, we will be made like our Lord. And that process has already begun. What Paul will teach us in Romans 6 is how we operate in, in this world before that new age comes... And what is our pursuit in, in, in that process? The last time I, I said, I don't think it's, a, it's a, an overstatement um, to say this. But, but chapter 6 is one of the most pivotal parts of the Bible as it relates to Christ, uh, Christian and sin. I mean, if you will win the war with your flesh and live a life pleasing to God, you need to understand and to practice what Paul is teaching in Romans 6. I mean, Romans 6 is the first time Paul talks about living the Christian life in light of salvation. I mean, if Romans 6, I'm sorry, if the book of Romans is the systematic theology of the New Testament, this is the first time in that, in that opus that, that Paul talks about living the Christian life. I mean, he's been talking about sin and what happened to us and the gospel, and now he gets to, to, to start introducing the living part. Um, Romans 6.2 and what follows is vital to understand that. And so Paul starts the topic with a familiar question in verse, verse 1. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? And then Paul answers the, the, the question. He answers the question, if the law wasn't meant to restrain sin, then how can grace do it? And the answer is given in, in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He says, we died to sin in Christ, meaning we died to its power. It, it, it's now been broken off in the life of a believer. And then he explains what he means by that in verses 3 through, through 11. And you can tell what Paul wants us to understand first because what he emphasizes is very clear. It's repeated over and over. He emphasizes this death, death to sin. A believer's death to sin is repeated. Verse 3. We were baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were buried with him into death. 
Verse 5, in his death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified. Verse 7, anyone who died is freed from sin. Verse 8, we died with Christ. That's what he wants us to understand first. But he doesn't stop there. He, he adds to, to that. He kind of turns the coin over. He also says we have new life to live as well. He wants us, you to understand the, the new life. And he repeats that as well in verse 4. So that we too might walk in newness of life. In verse 5. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 8. We believe that we shall also live with him. Verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead. And so then once Paul explains this doctrine of this union with Christ, the union with his death, the union with his resurrected life, he starts applying it in verse, in verse 11. Just a flyover to help you see how this passage goes together, remind you. Verse 11, he starts applying it. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. He brings those two realities together here in verse 11 that he's been expounding and, and, and explaining. In, in the same way, account yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. You are these things, so act as if this fact is true. Believe it. And that application then comes in the form of commands that go all the way through verse 14, verse 12, command. Do not let sin reign so that you obey its lusts. Verse 13, command. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to, to sin. Second half of verse 13, but present them to God as instruments of, of righteousness. And kind of a summary statement Brings us back where he began in verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. And that's kind of a bridge to introduce the new topic. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. So now he brings up a whole new set of questions, or one specific question about the law, and he starts that whole process over again. But verses 2 through 13 is Paul's primary answer to the question about how grace restrains sin. And he's going to explain that by teaching us about our union with, with Christ. And we didn't finish that last time. We got about halfway through. And we said that there were three things that changed at your conversion. You were united with, with, with Christ. You you died to sin, and then you were made alive to God to, to live this, this new life. A good summary of what Paul is, is about to say in verses 3 through 5. He, he describes three interrelated unions that took place at salvation. These are not things you're commanded to do. These are things that happened whenever you were born again, when you were made a new creation in Christ. First, we were united with Christ in verse 3. Second, we, we were united with His death at the beginning of verse 4. And then three, we were united with His resurrection. Verses 4 and 5. There are two parts to that last one I'll show you whenever we get there. These three unions, you need to understand in order to defeat the resident presence of sin while you're waiting on full redemption, which will happen at your resurrection which is the coming of the, of the new age. And just by way of review, the, the first union is that you were united with, with Jesus Christ. And he, 
He starts with an apparent statement and followed by an associated result. Look at verse 3. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in, into his death? He, he begins with this rhetorical question, and it's a follow-up statement to, to verse 2, where he states, You died to sin. And he says, Do you not know? Meaning, of course you know that, that you did that. It's like saying, Does that shock you that I say that a Christian dies to sin? It doesn't shock you, does it? Everyone knows a Christian's relationship to sin has changed. And, and he's defining that change as death. And not only that, he specifies that this applies to, to Christians, to all Christians. Notice verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The all of us of verse 3 is the we from verse 4. We died to sin. So he's clearly saying that this is something specific and this is a specific and defined group of people. The we is emphatic and is further defined in verse 3. What Paul says applies to the people of God is found in verses 2 and 3, to all of them. And at the moment of salvation, we were placed into union with, with Christ, which is this reference to, to baptism that he mentions twice. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I mean, Paul doesn't say it's the baptism that brings the death. It's this union with Christ that does. It, and it says Christ's death is what overcomes sin. I mean, the flaw in the Catholic interpretation and others like it is, is they place the emphasis on the baptism on the means, rather than on the death and the resurrection of, of Christ. I mean, Paul chooses baptism because it pictures dying and rising with Christ. It, it encompasses all that happens to us in, in, in conversion. I mean, he's not saying that there's any magic in the water or that the water itself causes a death to sin or the fact that we do that brings about a death to sin. I mean, he's already said that we died to sin in verse, verse 2. He's now explaining what, what that means, what that looks like. And his main point is our union with Christ changed, it our rela- changed our relationship to sin, which baptism represents. A believer's participation with the death and resurrection of Christ takes place at conversion. And baptism pictures that, symbolizes that. We'll see some baptisms tonight. And there'll be those who will stand in the water and and they'll give their testimony of what Christ has already done in them. Their baptism is their personal and public statement that this has happened to me and how it has happened. Paul says when we were converted, we were united with Christ. And then we were submerged into Him. And all of the outcomes of His work. And because of that, we were also incorporated into His death. Here's the second union that, that he describes here. The second union you need to understand is you were united with his death. Here, verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. And understanding that being baptized into Christ means being in union with him, that, that helps explain what he means here, by being baptized into his death. Those who were baptized into Christ were also united with, with his death, meaning the effects of his death. We were 
We were placed into the effects of Christ's death. I mean, you didn't die on the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross. So how do you get the benefits of, of, of what happened on the cross? Well, you were submerged into that. You were placed in union with Christ. And when you were placed in union with Christ, the, the benefits or what happened to Christ accounted to, to you. Because he did die and you were placed in him, you received the effects of that death as well as it relates to sin. I mean, think about what Paul's arguing here. He's saying death to sin is equated to becoming a Christian. That's the all of us or or the we. And that believers are, are translated from the realm in which sin rules. And that translation was through death. We died. And now we're no longer under its tyranny. It's the same thing he says in, in verse 2. The person who has died to sin cannot live in it any longer. I mean, a Christian can commit the sins that they did before salvation, but they're not able to live in those sins like they, they did before. It's different. And according to Paul, it's not that they shouldn't, it's that they can't. You can't if you're a Christian. And he tells us that took place when we were baptized into Christ. And now he goes further and explains that that new relationship to, to sin is a, is a reality because we, we were baptized into his death. I mean, being joined with Christ also joins a Christian with, with a death. And it's, there's a union that's so close between the Christian and Christ that it can be said that what happened to him happened to, to us. We died to sin in Jesus Christ. Because when he died, we died in him. And just to emphasize the definitive nature of this death to sin, he uses the, the phrase, and we were buried with him. It's a, it's a definitive death. It's not a partial death. It's a definitive death. I mean, do you struggle with sin? You want victory over sin. You, you want to be holy. You desire to do that. Well, Paul says the key to sanctification is not some higher life experience or, or some emotional moment where you really get in touch with, with God. I mean, he says the key to sanctification right here in Romans 6 is to understand what happened to you when you were placed into Christ to begin with. To understand what happened on the cross, and then how those benefits come to you through, through this union, and then living in light of that. That's where the power comes from. But Christianity is not just a death to something. It's also living to something else. Here is the, the third union that you need to understand that's described here. He says you were united with the likeness of His resurrection. And he says that that, that likeness is, is in two ways. One that's happening right now in your Christian life and one that will happen in the, in the future. Look, if you would, at verse, verse 4. He says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, which is the first part, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Here's the main point that Paul has been moving toward. And and if this seems a a little verbose, take out the explanatory statement and and read it without that for a minute. 
this so that as Christ was raised from the dead uh, through the glory of God the Father. Take out that part and just read it this way. So that, or in order that, we too might walk in newness of life. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that we too might walk in newness of life. There's an important explanatory statement there, but, but reading it that way helps you see Paul's point, I think. That's God's purpose or God's goal in you dying to sin. It's so that you could walk in a new life. Now, you can't forget what Paul said earlier. Um, this is where he's moving, but, but you have to understand verse 3 before you get here. Verse 2 is the main idea. Verse 3 begins to explain it. Because if you don't understand this death to sin, then you're not going to understand what, he, what he's saying right now, this new life, or you're going to get it all backwards, which, which a lot of people do. I mean, he's saying our death to sin and our union with Christ is what makes it possible for us to live a, live a new life. Meaning that if you've not died to sin, if you've not been born again or regenerated and placed into union with Christ, then you're not going to have the ability to live a new life. It's very important because I say many people try to, to turn that around. They think that the, the, you start living a new life. That's how you get into Christ. What Christianity is, is you just start living a new way. And so you stop this or you stop that or you start going to church or you start reading your Bible or giving or whatever it, whatever it might be. This is the turning over a new leaf uh, idea of, uh, of the world. And that's no different than any other religion. But Paul says death has to happen before a new life. You have to die. You have to die to the old before you can live to the new. There must be an end of you. If there's an end of you, then there's a beginning of Christ. All the, all the other religions in the world say, learn our information and then start living a new way. But only Christianity says it's by grace and you must die. And not only must you die, but you must be raised to a new life before you can ever start living what God commands. I mean, this is, this is the Sermon on the Mount. You're sitting there listening to the Sermon on the Mount, and it starts wonderful, blessed are the, and it goes through all of these characteristics of kingdom living, and, and you're tracking with that, a new rabbi teaching um, these, these truths that are, that are echoing, and then you get to the point where, where Jesus says, but except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's just shocking. I mean, who's more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, those who write the law? No, those who know the law so well, they've been set apart to, 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 to scribe out the Bible and to help interpret the Bible. Or the Pharisees, the ones who are, are the, the models for living out, out the law. And Jesus says, accept your righteousness far exceeds their righteousness. You don't even come close to heaven. You have heard... But I say unto you, he starts applying the law to the heart. It's not, just, uh, it's not just committing physical adultery. It's looking upon a woman with lust. I mean, he's saying the law of God applies all the way down to the heart. You say, well, who hasn't looked upon somebody in a, in a lustful way or something in a lustful way? And that's the whole point. He's locking us up under the law. He's showing us that the law is not just these externals. The law is applied to the heart. And when the law of God shines like a light on our hearts, we're all guilty. And yet the righteousness that you need comes from the heart. And, 
And his whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to bring us to the invitation that there are two ways to live. There are two places that you can build your life, on the sand or on the rock. There are two gates. There's an exclusive narrow gate, which is Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone. Or there's, there's a wide road, and many are on that, that, that road. And Paul says, you have to understand that, that, that you, there's a death that has to happen. And, and you'll, not, you'll not grasp that death until you see the, the righteousness that, that's required. In verse 4, Paul is showing that the, the end goal is not just this death to sin, though, the end of you, but, but something new. We live a new life in relation to sin. Tom Schreiner said the purpose clause here, this so that or in order that, you might walk in newness of life, is almost equivalent to an imperative, anticipating the imperatives that are coming. We should walk. Um, emphasizes this new reality. If you died, then you should walk. You have a moral life where there's a, a certain way to live, and that's a result of dying to sin. It's possible because you died. And it was our union with Christ that brings that about as well. Look at, look at verse 4 again. So that, here's the explanatory phrase, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in in newness of life. I mean, just as Christ didn't stay in the grave, a believer doesn't either. I mean, God says Christians don't just get separated from their old life, they get raised to live a a new life. And notice Paul doesn't just tell us that this happened, he he describes the manner of life that that we we, we now live. He says it's it's a new life, or living in the newness of, of life. The word newness refers to a, a new quality or a, or a new character. It's also clear by, by this statement, just as. Just as Christ died, he was raised to a new life. Just as that happened to him, that is a reality for you as well. And this new life has a new power. It's this reference through the glory of the Father. Doug Moose said, at the moment Christ died and was buried and resurrected, we were in Him and so participated in these events with Him. And that has an effect, even though that happened 2,000 plus years ago, that has an effect right now in 2023, this morning. John MacArthur said the point is, as as believers, we have everything new. That's how we can now live for God on the other side of the cross, we have resurrection power running through our converted veins. And he'll go on to explain what he means. Where did that resurrection power come from? It comes by the Spirit or from the Spirit. That's what he'll say in Romans 8. But right now we have a new life and a new heart and a new song and a new spirit, a new name, a new creation. We're, we're a new creature. Which then, of course, means that we live differently, right? And that's not hard to understand. We have a new way of living, just like we had an old way of living. You, you do have a new way of living, don't you? I mean, if you don't have a new way of living, and you claim to be converted or know Jesus Christ, you, you need to, to check to see whether that actually happened. When, when you were dead to God and alive to sin, you lived your life based on the impulses of the flesh, uh, 
in this world. I mean, if it felt good or brought you some benefit, you, you did it. But as a believer, you're now dead to that old life. You're, you're dead to that old way of living. Even the impulses of that old life are not the same now. You, you died to them. I mean, hold a bottle under the nose of a, of a drunk and, and he'll lift his head to drink it. But wave that same bottle under the nose of, of his corpse once it's lying in a casket and it won't do anything. He can't. It, it can't. And sin no longer has power over him in, in death. It's the same way for a believer. The, the old way now stinks. It smells like death to us. But, but we've also been raised to a new life, and that new life is, is in God. And so we like what God likes. Isn't that your experience? I mean, you like new things now? I mean, let me test you. Did you enjoy coming to church before you were saved? I didn't. <laughs> I mean, I avoid, avoided it like the plague. I, I mean, I, I went till I was 10 or 12, and, and then I didn't come back till I was 24. I mean, even when I went for a funeral, I, I, I went for a funeral, and I'm in and out. I'd go to the visitation and get out of there. I didn't want to sit into the sermon. A wedding? Let's do a venue. Let's not do a church. But, but now, I mean, it, it, it's my weekly delight. I mean, I can't get enough of you people. I really can't. I, I mean, I'm in London. I'm talking about you. I'm telling the, the church there how much I miss you. I'm watching you whenever I'm, I, I'm gone. I mean, that's different. New desires. I mean, did you like reading the Bible be, before you were saved? I mean, it was boring, wasn't it? Or you, you did, it didn't make sense, or it, it made you mad, or you wanted part of it and not all of it. Now it's more important than food. I mean, it's better than the sweetest thing in life. I mean, you can't get enough of it. No matter how deep you understand it or, or not, you know that the Bible is life and the words of your, of your king, and you want to hear it. And if you get dull in, in your walk you, and you go without the Bible or, or the people of God, it's not too long before you feel it. You get weak and frail Maybe that's what's wrong this morning. Maybe that's what's been wrong for, for a while. Maybe, maybe you let something in between you and the, and, and the Lord. Maybe it's been a while since you've been living this, this new life. You're saved. If you've, you've been there, but something got, got off. A Christian who is in Christ can't, can't live a long time like that. You need, you need daily bread. If that's you, can I encourage you this morning? You don't need to do anything to get back where, where you were. All you need has already been done for you in Jesus Christ. You, you just need to start eating again. You just need to say, Lord, I blew it. Forgive me. You need to repent, confess. That's something you could do this morning, even before the sermon's done, and then you say, feed me, and he will. And when you humble yourself in that way, the joy that was there in salvation just comes flooding back. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's not all Paul says, though. There, there's something even more encouraging. Look at verse 4 B again. He says, So that, or in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a, a, a new life. I mean, when Paul ties this new life to the resurrection, it adds another layer, especially with what's coming in verse 5. I'll show you in a minute. 
And when he talks about this new life, it's not just new versus the old. It, it clearly is that. But he, he's, when, when he ties it to the resurrection, he ties it to a new age that, that's coming. We were buried with Christ for the purpose that, that we might walk in newness of life, that we might live a new way, that we might have a new lifestyle. It's a, it's a new way of living from, from an old way of living. But the word newness doesn't just mean new versus old. It, it means that, that it is empowered. This new life that you live is, is empowered by the realities of the new age. Doug Moo again said, we now live a life that reflects the values of the new age. Does your life reflect the values of the world? It's reflecting less and less, isn't it? Because the world's changing. You're not changing, but the world's changing. And notice he says that this through the glory of the Father, and he mentions the resurrection. That's a reference to God's power. Now, why include that? I mean, what does that mean? I mean, it means that, the, that Christ's resurrection was the moment that the, the new age was, was invaded the, the old world. It was when this glory of God was, was unveiled, a glory that will reign over all the earth one day. Numbers 14, 22 says, Yet as surely as I live, as surely as the whole earth is filled with the, with the glory of the Lord. But look at Habakkuk 2, 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When will that happen? What will happen in the kingdom? He mentions the, the glory of God here. I mean, when Paul mentions this, it means that Christ's resurrection is a sign of, of what is to come. I mean, the world was going along with the promise, the promise of the kingdom, the promise of the, of the kingdom, and then the king comes. And when the king comes, he, he's entered this, this age, this present evil age. And Paul says when Jesus died and rose from the dead, the, the new age has dawned. The, it's invaded this, this world. It's a, it's a testimony. It's the beginning of something. It's not the end of something. The Bible says there's a new age coming where there'll, there'll be no sin at all and it'll contain only believers who have the law written on their, their hearts. There'll be no need for anyone to teach them. They'll, they will already know. That'll happen in the kingdom. The fullness of all things. That's coming. That's coming. Between the comings. The first coming and the second coming. But before that new age comes in its fullness... Paul says it's already dawned. It's broken into this old world, this world that's not yet redeemed, and it's broken in through the hearts and the lives of Christians who are now citizens of this new kingdom. This is what Peter means when he says we're exiles and strangers. We're in Peter's passage. We're sojourners here. He means what we sing. This world is not my home. We're just passing through. It means what Jesus says in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What do you mean, Lord? I'm, I'm not of the world. I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. How did that happen? Well, I'm not of the world because there's been a change. I've died to this world, but I've been raised 
at the resurrection of Jesus, this new world has dawned, and now it reigns in my, in my heart. But I'm still here in this world. And yet while I'm in this world, I'm now a kingdom citizen of Jesus Christ. We live outside of the gates of the kingdom, outside of the time of the kingdom, and we live this way until the kingdom dawns. But there's a new king that now reigns in our hearts. And because he has given us new life in our hearts, the kingdom has already begun to reign there. So outwardly, we still live in this fallen world. We're still mingled in evil all around us. Think back to to the messages during uh, Richard Caldwell during the, our conference, the wheat and the tares living between the kingdoms. We're not fully redeemed yet. We still have our, our bodies and a remnant of the flesh. But we've, already been made, we've already been made new creations. We're promised that even this physical body will be resurrected one day. A full redemption is, is coming. And part of that has already happened in the heart of a believer. And the fullness is, is coming, which is what he, he'll say next. And Paul is saying that while we wait on the complete fulfillment of all that Christ will do and all that he's promised us, we have already been given the power of the new age within us, the power of the, the raised Christ. That, that's when it invaded. That's when it came. And because of that, we are no longer ruled over by this old world, which is represented by the term sin. We have power power that raised Jesus from the dead operating in you. Don't tell me you don't have power to overcome porn. Don't tell me you can't stop eating or drinking or that sin's pull is too strong. It's not stronger than Jesus, is it? It's not stronger than the power that raised Christ from the grave, is it? It's not. It doesn't have that kind of power. That's what Satan wants you to believe. And as long as you believe that, you, you won't overcome it. You'll remain as captive. This whole concept is why Paul starts with this truth before he ever gets to the commands to start telling you what to do. He tells you the the indicative. This is what happened. This is the reality for a Christian. You died to sin. You've been placed in union with Christ because of that. As Christ was raised, you have now been raised to walk in a new life, and you have a power to do that. And this is the connection you have to understand if you're going to win the battle of sin. Our incorporation into Christ and this death to this old power and this rising of the new age within us, this new life, then comes the command to live like it. We're living in that new age right now in our hearts. So we're commanded to act like it by not yielding the remnant of our earthly members to the old ways even though we still live in this world. We're to yield our earthly members in this world. That's why he uses that term, earthly members. And we do that by carrying out the new acts of the new age, meaning kingdom living. And verse 5 makes the promise of the fullness that, that's coming. Look, if you would, at verse 5. Here's the, the other part, how you're... You're united in this, the likeness of his resurrection. Part of that's now and part of it's coming in the future. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now notice this is an explanation. He starts with the, the little word for. He's explaining what he just got done saying. 
And verse 5 kind of operates like a bridge between the first part of Romans 6 and the second part. I mean, he states a truth here in verse 5 that he's going to develop further. Verses 6 through 10. Verse 5 has two parts. It's a conditional sentence, and you can see the two parts with the word if and then. If we have been united with him in the likeness or uh, in his death, that's the first part, which is what he's been talking about for the last several verses. He'll develop that further in verses 6 and 7. Then he moves to the second part, which begins with the word then. Then we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection, something that he'll also develop in verses 8 through 10. But the main thing I want you to see in verse 5 is is notice this is a promise in the future based on a a past action or reality that he's been talking about. Look at verse 5 again. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, have we? Yeah, that's what he's just got done saying to us over and over and over. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we have in the past, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. I mean, everything Paul's been saying up to this point is past. You died, you were raised so that you might walk in the newness of life. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised. That affects you right now as a Christian after you come to Christ, after you've been converted. But now he changes to something in the future. If we have been united with Christ in the likeness of his death, and he just got done telling us we surely were, then we will, future tense, be united with him in a resurrection like his. So in verse 5, he's talking about something that's even beyond this life. After you come to Christ, and here he's talking about a future resurrection. I mean, here all three phases of salvation are represented in in verses 3 through 5. There's the regeneration where you you die to a penalty, the penalty of sin and the, the rule and reign of sin. The bonds of sin is, is dealt with there in, in verse 3. Then there's this raising to live or walk in a new life in verse 4. That's over the period of your Christian life. There's a beginning. There's this process that happens. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're alive to God and you begin to live that way. And now in verse 5 he talks about the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, glorification that's, that's coming. There's the penalty of sin, the power of sin and sanctification, and then glorification. One day the very presence of sin is going to be gone. And these truths motivate us to press on here and now while we long and we wait for that day when, when we'll be made like the Lord. Does that motivate you? It should. And then he says it's all of grace. Not by any law or anything that you add. He says while the spiritual effects of the resurrection are felt right now in your heart, You have resurrection power in your heart. You have the Spirit of God operating in you. You don't have the the power of sin chaining you. Your inability has been dealt with. You have the spiritual effects of the resurrection of Christ operating right now. There's an actual resurrection that's taking place. 
You don't feel that as a, as a believer? This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 7. Who will separate me from this body of death? There's this war in me. What I want to do, I find I don't do. What I don't want to do, I find myself doing. When is this going to end? What's the solution? I mean, Paul's already a believer. His sin has already been paid for. What is he talking about? He's talking about what you feel as a Christian, the world around you, sin in you, and you hate it. And you you, you don't like stumbling, much less falling or wallowing. You know these truths. The king reigns in your heart, and that you allow your body to live in such a way that dishonors that king, and that happens in your life over and over and over Every Christian experiences that, and yet you hate it. And so you say, like Paul, who will separate me? And what he's saying here is there's a separation coming. (laughs) There's a separation coming from this body. You will be resurrected one day, and when that happens, a new body without sin at all, and a new age. And just as we've experienced death to sin and an invasion of this new age in our hearts... In the hearts of Christians, we await a physical resurrection that's surely coming. And Christians, you know what this promises? It promises that God will complete the process. He's not done bringing amazing grace into your life. It's as good as done. It just hasn't happened yet. And he started it at your conversion. Started it at your regeneration. It didn't end there. It's not that you slide in the kingdom and now... I'm glad that's over with. I'm not going to hell anymore. I can just coast. His work started at conversion. You've died to sin and its power, and you've been given new life and new power, and that new age that's coming has already invaded this old world, and that happened at the resurrection of Jesus. There's coming a day when we'll leave this world, and your spirit will separate from this body, and you'll be given a new body, and that's in the resurrection, and Your body will rise just as Christ rose. And on that day, God will complete what He began before the foundation of the world. And your redeemed spirit will be reunited with this newly, now redeemed and changed and transformed body. And you'll enter the new kingdom. You'll serve there until God makes a new heaven and a new earth. And on that day, it will be as Revelation 21 says... And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. They're true and they're, they're trustworthy. It's happening. It's coming. And we understand all that and read all that as Christians and we say, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. But until then, we live in light of these truths and wait for the coming. We, we live between the first and second coming. And the first coming brought a death to sin. Power of sin's been broken. And brought a resurrected life. That's that's working in your heart, working out in the way in which you live. And there's the promise of what is coming. And we wait for that coming, longing for that coming. Are Are you living the newness of life, Christian? Are you living well? king reigning in your heart? Are you longing and waiting for the resurrection? Are you living for the kingdom, the new age that's coming? If you're not living for that, 
you're, you're, you're not, you probably don't have a lot of power in your life. I mean, what else would you live for? Retirement? Having fun? Something else? I mean, he's saying that what, what, what propels us to, to, to fight the battle against sin, I mean, the battle's won. The victory has been won. The, what, what, what propels us to lay hold of it and live it out is, is the kingdom. I mean, that, that's what we long for, Christ and in a time whenever He reigns and there is no sin. If you're not understanding Romans 6, then you're probably struggling. And if you are, the good news is you can come back to this one. It's nothing that you do. It's saying to Him, you did this and I believe it and help me even today. And maybe you're here still in your sin. Maybe you don't even have any power to overcome your sin. And you know it's got a hold of you. What you need to do is, is bow to the king that issues you a call that says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I'll break the chains. I'll break the power that's sin that you don't have the power to. I'll do it. But you have to come to me. If you come to me, there is no chain that's holding you that I cannot break. You'll die to it, and you're raised to walk in new life, and then you'll learn how to live that out, awaiting a resurrection that's coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that you help us to understand it and see it. In one sense, you think of a concept of dying to sin and raising to walk in new life and and you just say what does that mean and yet as you, you as a believer sits here and listens to your truth the spirit of god just helps us understand same thing for an unbeliever maybe sitting here or listening you know, never understood how um, someone dying on a cross 2000 years ago can forgive their sins and give them power and and you just turn the lights on. It's not a human thing. It's not a will thing. That's a divine thing. I pray, Lord, you would do that even this morning. Add people to the kingdom. And I pray for those of us who have your power reigning in our hearts that we would live according to it. Deliver a Christian today. May they find the joy that they had whenever they first came to Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.